Welcome to the Don't Overthink This podcast, where we explore and connect ideas without overthinking it. I'm Brian Heath. And I'm Ross Jackson. So Dr. Jackson, I was wondering if you could expound upon your post about positive uncertainty versus negative un- or negative certainty. Yeah, so I, I found I found an interesting way that people formulate things. And and it's when when they know something is a negative, they actually posit it as uncertainty about the positive. So for for instance, if if I knew for a fact that you didn't like my jokes, right? Which I don't I, I would <laughs> I, I would I would posit that as uncertainty as I don't know that you like my jokes, as opposed to I know that you don't like my jokes. So I, I find it an interesting human glitch that that they prefer to have positive uncertainty rather than negative certainty. And, and I've, I've found it in, in sort of office conversations as people are talking about forecasts about the future or just sort of banal human interactions that when it comes to negatives, people like to hedge and sort of assert uncertainty about the positive. Have, have you ever experienced that? Yeah, it's something I've, I've been contemplating a lot with respect to this podcast. Even before you wrote it, it was sort of in my mind was a different perspective. But the whole, like when you wrote like the hedging idea in there that people like to hedge, I was wondering, do we hedge too much? on this podcast like do we provide too many outlets or do or would it be more informative to be more like when we are certain about something to say like we are certain or even if we're not so certain is it more interesting to the the listeners if we just say this is the way it is or do you feel like it's inauthentic to be that way well I, i definitely think that it would be inauthentic for you and i to be that way that that is definitely not who we are uh existentially but, you know, things like, I guess, and one should evidently never speak ill of the dead, but Rush Limbaugh comes to mind where, you know, he was all bluster and confidence and and aggressively certain in every pronouncement that he made and, and was certainly successful in, in entertaining people and, and getting the base riled up. But how amazingly irrelevant is his entire existence now? The, the, the decades of work that he did, which was successful, is now entirely irrelevant. And its irrelevance is because it was complete and utter bullshit. So, you know, I think that you and I don't, don't have that certainty because life itself is uncertain. And the things that we contend with are contestable and amenable to human action, right? We can change things. And therefore, one has to have a degree of uncertainty in confronting them. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. I definitely don't, haven't thought about Rush Limbaugh in a very long time. (laughs) You should should think about him. It's a cautionary tale. (laughs) I do think probably his legacy lives on in in other ways, uh, but not with him directly. Yes, I mean he's he's had an effect, the the sort of ripple effect. There there's people who have picked up his mantle, but it's not like Benjamin Franklin, where we're we're still quoting the wise utterances of Benjamin Franklin. I I, I can't uh, I can't remember the last time I've heard anybody directly quote something Rush Limbaugh said because he never truly said anything other than his his aggressive 
assertion of his position? I think there's probably nuances here, but the sometimes I think some of the hedging maybe that I do or maybe other people do at times when we're talking or thinking about something is trying to reserve an out. Like in case we like we we acknowledge that there might be that we might be wrong in some way. And so we sort of hedge and sort of allow this space to exist where we could venture out of it. But I, I wonder if if society or culture was more interested in like or would be maybe maybe we're just not forgiving enough to be like, yeah, you know, they said some stuff and it's clearly they were wrong and clearly I'm wrong and but that's okay. But now it's like, no, forever locked in history that you said this thing recorded forever. So now everyone must hedge even more so. Yeah. So I I can say at least, you know, I mean, deep down psychologically, who knows, but at least in my conscious thinking, I I don't know that I have a lot of that. I, I, and I mean, I don't mean this like in an arrogant way, but if one is correct frequently enough, they don't tend to feel compelled to be correct all of the time. And I'm wrong. I, I've been wrong. Sometimes I'm epically wrong. And and usually, while I'm I'm not probably the first person to enjoy the comedic value of me being wrong, I, I'm a, I'm a close second or third, and certainly can enjoy w- when I am wrong. So so my I don't think mine comes from some sort of fear of societal unforgiveness about being wrong. I've, I've been wrong. Things that I've written aren't necessarily consistent with my thinking today. And, you know, I, I don't walk away from it. It's not like, oh, you know, I wish I didn't write that. It, it just reflects my thinking at a particular point in time. And, and the things that I've gotten wrong, sometimes they're epically wrong. And that's okay. I definitely think we all have our moments of being wrong. And I think that's a very like mature, like an insightful view of, of how you contemplate and think about it. I know like within the pop culture sort of thing, there's all this like cancel culture idea. Like even if things you did a long time ago, people want like to pull all that stuff back and be like, oh, well, look what they did at this time window or this sort of thing. And so I just wonder how much that might be influencing even, you know, business and organizations where especially maybe in the management realm or even in the analytics, you know, business realm where it's like, Hey, you're going to be held to this number that you said, you're going to be held to the statement that you made for all time, even though the reality is no one's going to like care in like 20 years, probably about what you did. But the, the fear that it comes back, like that is part of the cultural mind of cancel culture perspective. I, I wonder how much that it plays into the role of maybe why, and we get more into business and analytics why people hedge so much on like no one says anything really i feel like yeah yes that's that's for sure the the way that things get packaged and conveyed and and presented uh there's there's very little if any content in the communication yeah and i think about people liking stuff on facebook and like so what does that even mean that you like something Are, is that a strong opinion about that do you enjoy that like what's the is it just a general like i support a person this feels like the whole idea of opinions and likes and thoughts are all just kind of lost in like a malaise of existing. I don't know. Well, I, I know that as somebody that has never had Facebook, that I like a lot of things on Facebook because those things are not in my life. So <laughs> I like everything that's on Facebook because it leaves my life unencumbered. Yeah, I don't think you are either big uh, social media folks, which might be part of the reason why no one or hardly anyone listens to this podcast. Well, it hasn't caught on yet, Dr. He. Yeah, maybe we should create our own social network. What kind of 
if we were to create our own social network, I know we've created the union, right? We've already created the analytics union, but now I think we need to go full digital. W what would our social network look like if we were to create something, do you think? <laughs> well, I, I, I think that the aesthetic would be in black and white. Yeah. Would it just be like text just scrolling endlessly? Would we have pictures? Oh, we'd have tons. We'd have uh, the eternal artwork in in the 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 social setting. Uh, we would probably have audio files of me playing guitar badly. It it would be a, a true random potpourri of of goodness from from our perspective. I definitely think our social network would be an interesting place. But I wonder if we would be more selective in who we let in. Oh, I think we we most certainly would. What would be the criteria you think we would come up with for letting people into the in, into the fold? Would it uh, just be like a so, simple like essay requirement? Because most well, people I wouldn't mean, even we, bother writing it anyway. I don't know that we could do it through essay, but I, I know that conceptually, I I only have about three. I only have about three criteria to join my um, social network in real life. So I would imagine the the virtual social network would be about the same and. The, th the three criteria that I have is that people need to be authentic. They need to be intelligent, which isn't the same as being educated. And uh, they need to be funny. So, you know, if, if somebody has those three things, they're in. Do you think that makes them relatable? I, I think it makes them compelling that, that when they speak, they're, they're saying something that's engaging and compelling and real as opposed to, you know, trying to network or, or trying to maneuver or trying to use the interaction as a means rather than an end. Uh, when people are authentic, intelligent, and funny, uh, they, they engage in a way that is real. I'm trying to think of what criteria I would have. I think those are like good summaries, but I think inside the social network, I think it'd be interesting to like, make it where like no one can actually connect to any individual exactly. You can only just put stuff out there and then, you know, but you can't actually like do anything, be friends with someone or something like that. Like being in the network itself is some, some sort of that, that thing. And maybe that would also be like a filter of being like, what's the point of this thing? And you're like, well, you clearly don't get it. So exactly. People, <laughs> people would self-select out. So you had a quip in one of your posts that uh, you, you, you created what I think might be the first usage of this maybe soon to be epic burn when you said to people, they are such an AI chat bot. So uh, do you think that that, that burn is going to catch on in organizations? I, I hope so. And I feel like it, it will at some point, I think it already exists in like other sorts of burns. Like, you know, you're, 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 you know, you're such a sellout or something like that in some capacity, but I think it, well, it's, wait, a, wait, it's wait, a little wait. more nuanced. Wait a minute, Dr. Heath. All those time people told me I'm such a sellout, that was meant as an insult? I think so, but sometimes, man, I thought, sometimes I thought it's they were like I thought they were like slapping me on the back going, man, you you figured it out. Way to go. You sold out. I, <laughs> man, I, 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 well, was I think it largely people. depends on who, who's, uh, who's, who's saying it. I do... I do think there's like a certain like sell used to be something a lot worse than what it means now. So maybe it's not as bad. In some ways, I think if you're going to make it in sort of the traditional business, modern business culture, you, you have to kind of learn a bit of that selling out perspective. So uh, I do I do think there could be a pat on the back for being a sellout. 
Yeah, my, my advice to people, and I mean, it's it's a contingent statement, right? It's it's predicated on if, but but the advice that I always gave to incoming people is, if you are going to sell out, do so early. Yeah, early and often, right? <laughs> that, that the the benefit the benefit is derived not from holding out until seventy five percent of your career is done. Get on the ground floor of selling out. So I think. In that, in that vein, my sort of like bird of you're such an AI chatbot is trying to get at this idea that the initial impression of an AI chatbot, like especially right now, so if people listen to this podcast like 20 years from now, they'll be like, what are they talking about? But the initial impression of an AI chatbot is, wow, this is actually pretty good at producing something that's interesting. Like we're sort of like marveling at the capability and maybe they can answer a few questions a little bit deeper, but if you know the area and you start asking nuances and you start poking around a bit, you'll realize it's just like inane chatter that it's already been regurg like picked up from somewhere else and just being regurgitated at you. Now, now before you go further, in their defense, they do incorporate chat into the thing. So the fact that it's endless chatter, <laughs> they they are sort of broadcasting that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this is not necessarily a dig or a ding against AI chatbot and the people who create them. It's the fact that there's people who act exactly like this and who are like this. Yes. Right? That they initially come off as knowing what they're talking about. And then you ask them like a few questions and they do it confidently. So these AI chatbots are like super confident and that's part of what sells it, right? And so it's all, and so they, they come off super confident. These people also come off super confident. But then when you just go like, one question deep or maybe two questions deeper and you see how they you, you realize quickly that they really don't know anything they're just really excellent at just regurgitating content that's already been created somewhere else and so that thing at least for me i find to be irksome when you engage with someone like that or when your initial impression is wrong but there's endless stories and like uh, cultural ideas and around hey don't judge a book by its cover and these sorts of things but it's still, I think it's an interesting perspective or an, it, maybe a more modern take that there will eventually be folks and maybe an insult will happen of calling people an AI chatbot because they have no depth to them whatsoever, you know, maybe equivalent to like they're dead behind the eyes kind of thing. So so I think that you, you hit upon something that's related, but more broadly impactful when you predicted, and, and there was no hedging on this, you predicted that the economic age of content is over. So um, what do you think will come next? That's where I struggle. Honestly, I'm not entirely sure what the next age will be, but because content can be generated so quickly and easily, it's gonna be like a dime a dozen to, to find, you know, you can generate photos, you can generate art, you can generate poems, you can generate, roughly good question, answers to questions. I think the a, the next sort of age would be more focused on creating unexpectedness or maybe thinking or something that is gonna be even more innately human. So like, as we sort of, it used to be a chore to generate content and it's hard, like there used to be content is king, but pretty soon content won't be all that hard to generate. So it might be more about how do you create connections, authentic connections with people and create communities. And maybe that's more of like the value. Maybe some of that's already happened with like Facebook and LinkedIn and these other sort of social media things kind of bring it back. And maybe we're going to create our own community of people, but maybe that becomes a more 
viable con viable thing where it's not just going to be people just showing up because something was generated. It's going to be people are going to show up because this is something meaningful to them in some deeper way. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's, I think, I think you're correct that the, the, the days of content are, are over that it's just across all media. It's, it's almost instantaneous to create and, and to create, in a way augmented that is so beyond human capability, right? I mean, it's sort of like auto-tuning singing. It, it's, it, 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 the computer can make everyone sound perfect. Um, so, you know, what's the value of the creation of content if everyone with a computer can, can create the same or similar thing? I think, and, and I don't know, but, you know, there, there's an element of creation as it's been over the last, let's say, 200 years that is performative. That it's, if, if I create something that is socially good, people will pat me on the head or, or give me money or whatever. I become some sort of celebrity. And there's perhaps a chance that with the democratization of talent through uh, all of this AI generated stuff, that maybe people become more attuned to the joy of creation, not for any sort of social prestige or benefit, but just simply for the joy. And that people, because everyone can do everything that's considered great or conforms to the parameters, People will will continue to create, but but be much more internal with the creation and and less looking for validation through the act of creation. Yeah, I don't think it's any coincidence that I think younger generations are more engaged in like crafting and woodworking and music and these sorts of things than maybe the generation that preceded them, because of that sort of maybe that evolution that's happening of the joy of creating things. And maybe yeah. also this free time from having, ideally, hopefully less need to be at work. And and I think, I mean, for me, the metaphor, the one that, that sort of speaks the deepest to me is, is the creation of bonsai trees. And the, the thing that I find engaging with it as a metaphor is, is that it's the, the human is only partially in control, that, that this, this thing is living and, and you're trying to prune and shape and train, but this thing is, is also part of the creation that, it, that it's, you know, you can invest a lot of your time and energy and effort and, uh, you know, a snap could come in the weather, light could hit, and then you adjust, right? So if, if a third of the tree dies over the winter, and in the spring, you're now adjusting, okay, how do I incorporate some of this into what's what's going to emerge as the new version of the tree? And that the creation is done over a long period of time. Perhaps the rest of both the tree and the human's life uh, is engaged in this symbiotic creation of something that may just reside on the deck of somebody's backyard and nobody other than uh, the person even knows that it's there. Yeah, one of the things that I enjoy about woodworking, not to continue on with the, the, the tree plant scenario, but that it's imperfect. 
the medium is imperfect um, and you have to sort of adjust on the fly. And that's what I enjoy the most and trying to make things work, uh, no matter how much engineering and effort you put into like, this is exactly what's going to happen. The best thing to do is to kind of like measure and cut along the way, you know, no matter what the blueprint says, it's like, you're going to have to figure out some other path here. And that aspect of creation and being part of it, I think is, is valuable. But with respect to when I said that content, the age of con economic age of content is over, what's the, what's the economic side of this new creation or idea of building things or, you know, doing it for its own sake? Like what's the economic perspective on that from as being an, an economist? Well, I mean, certainly as I was envisioning the, the arts of creation for one's own, uh, there would be very little. Uh, you know, I, I really, I don't know. And I mean, you know, is it I'm the not, end of economics? Well, you know, I, I, I don't want to forecast that because the history of economics <laughs> in some respects is the history of how some economists think that technology is going to spell the end of capitalism as we know it, uh, et cetera. But, but I do think that there's a, a coming point where the majority of people do not have to be engaged in economic pursuits. I mean, they're, they're, the value of it is, is just not there. I mean, there's going to be so much can be automated, so much can be done at scale that at, at some point we're going to have to come to terms with what does it mean to have a vast majority of a society that does not have to be engaged in economic activity. And, and I think I think the key to that is they don't have to be engaged, right? I mean, I, I really do think, at least from dealing with you over the years, that, that you and I find joy in dealing with these things. And even if, you know, if we had some level of assured income and, and didn't have to do these things, the things that we do in the pursuit of economic interest and the things that we would do in, if, if we didn't have the, the economic incentive are at least partially, if not largely the same. But I think that other people are radically different, right? Some people would would do something radically different than than what they do. And I don't know what society looks like. I, I would I would like to think that there would be a way that as a society, we can come to terms with what we think a just society looks like for people that that don't have to work. And that people who do choose to work do so because it's fulfilling. And, and don't lord it over people like, oh, I'm the one that's producing all this stuff and you guys are just takers, which is, you know, our, our society now is, you know, we, we have a social framework, but we're assholes about it. I mean, there's such a condescension of, oh, you take this, you're a taker and I'm a job creator and you should, you should really valorize me because I'm creating jobs and you're a drain on society. And it's like, it's a bunch of bullshit. Uh, you know, I, I think as a society, we have to come to terms with if, if people found some form of work that was fulfilling, people would do that work. And, and that in, in an environment where people no longer have to work, those who are working are just doing it because it's fulfilling, not because they're some sort of savior to society. 
So, you know, I don't know. I don't know how long it'll take, but I, I think that some of the social angst that we're observing is is linked to the fact that this this impending transition is clear, at least on a visceral level to almost all of us. Do you think analytics work is uh, do people just do it just to do it? I do. It's gratifying. I mean, it's 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 the notion of do people like to read mystery novels? And the answer is yes. Well, what is analytics? Analytics is is a real life whodunit where you're you're trying to posit a hypothesis, you're trying to collect the evidence, you're trying to come to an understanding. People like not knowing, working through something, and then figuring something out. That's inherently gratifying. People will do analytics whether it's highly uh, compensated or not. I think it's probably the best pitch for analytics I heard in a long time. Trademark, uh, don't overthink this.com. Yes. <laughs> well, Dr. Jackson, I think we're at the top of our time. It was great chatting with you as always. Any parting words? I hope that you have a great fortnight, Dr. Heath, and I look forward to talking to you again. I look forward to our chats for sure. All right, everyone, thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed this content and you're looking for more of it, feel free to join us over at don'toverthinkthis.net where we have multiple posts daily and we look forward to talking to you in a few weeks. Thanks.